More Than Conquerors, that's the title of this series, More Than Conquerors, the greatest chapter, Romans 8, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Romans chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9, Transform Mindset is the title of this weekend's message. Let me uh, give you just a quick uh, few summary statements of last weekend's message. I would encourage you to go online and listen to this or get our uh, DB app and uh, download it, listen uh, to this message. But here's the summary of it. Life is a battle that you can't lose if you are in Christ Jesus because, because we are set free from the penalty of sin. That was verse 1, chapter 8. Through Christ's work, that's verse 3. So verse 1 and 3. And then, because we are set free from the power of sin, that's verse 2, through the Spirit's work, that's verse 4. And then it begins to transition, and that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. How does the Holy Spirit transform our lives? That's the question we're looking at here. Now, quick pop quiz here this morning. Um, Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Romans how many times? Yell it out to me. It's 30. How many are thinking 30? Okay, if you said 20, that's actually the, the answer to the next question. Holy Spirit is mentioned in Romans chapter 8, how many times? 20, you got it. So in the book, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Romans 30 times, in chapter 8, 20 times, and 15 of those 20 times in the first 15 verses. So what I, I believe what he's telling us here, he's explaining to us, what is the Spirit-filled life? You guys familiar with that phrase? How many, by show of hands, would say, I know what the Spirit-filled life is. It's, it's an extraordinary life. It's an amazing life. It's a great life. It's the life all of us want and want to enjoy and learn what that is about. And so he's actually, I think he's telling us, this is the Spirit-filled life. And so what is the Spirit-filled life? Ephesians 5.18 gives us, uh, it says this, maybe you're familiar with it. It says, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, a life out of control, but be filled with the Spirit. And in essence, you're just saying your life's going to be under the influence of something or someone. Allow your life to be under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. And the reason why I like that, uh, because he's kind of really defining for us a little bit of what the Spirit-filled life is in that verse in Ephesians 5.18, because this, the, uh, they're both, the Spirit-filled life and being drunk are like and unlike. Uh, they are, so being spirit-filled is like and unlike being, being drunk. That sounds, might sound a little odd to you, but let me explain myself here. Uh, so it's like, it's like being drunk because both make you, both being spirit-filled and being drunk make you happy and courageous, okay? And, uh, and, and obviously the Holy Spirit-filled life makes you much more than that, but they kind of make you both that, both happy and courageous, but how they do that, this is where they're unlike one another. How do they do that? Being drunk decreases reality, and so therefore you become happy and courageous. But the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit's working in your life, he increases the reality of, of the presence of Jesus and all that he's done for you. And therefore, inevitably, you're going to be happy and courageous and be able to face absolutely anything in your life. The Holy Spirit, and when you study through the New Testament, the Holy Spirit increases what are known as, how many by show of hands know what I'm talking about when I say the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, the gifts. The, these are opportunity to minister. God would use us powerfully to minister uh, through us in people's lives. There's a lot of different lists throughout the New Testament of the gifts. So what happens when you're Spirit-filled is that you have this increased capacity to be able to minister the grace and the goodness of God to people, but it also increases the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Show of hands, how many are familiar with the fruit of the Holy Spirit? How many would like to have more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, that's through the Spirit-filled life. And that comes as a result of, of the Holy Spirit making Christ more real to us, more real than, than any pleasure in this world and more real than any problem that you may face. Now, so we could answer, uh, we could put it this way. So how does the Holy Spirit transform our lives? That's what we're going to look at. We'll look at four steps here. I think that Paul really does a great job here in kind of unpacking this for us. But we could also ask that question in, in a number of other ways. How can we overcome sin and suffering? How can we be more than conquerors? How does Christ become more real, so real that sin doesn't overtake me and suffering doesn't overwhelm me? 
How are the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in me? We talked about that last week. How does God do his work in us so that the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us? How can I become more alive and peaceful spiritually? So how many would like to be happier and more peaceful uh, than you are right now? Show of hands. Yeah, I I would like that. I want to continue to grow in my, and, and the happiness I'm talking about here, oftentimes we define happiness and joy as different. But the happiness I'm talking about is not predicated upon our circumstances. I'm talking about, obviously, joy, but you can use those words interchangeably, but it's just like there's a delight, there's a happiness, there's a joy in Christ regardless of your circumstances, and there's a peace. That's where we're headed with our study here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Before we read this text and unpack these notes, God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. We love spending time with you. Father God, words cannot describe our gratitude for the gospel, the good news that you have reconciled us to yourself by sending your son Jesus to die in our place for our sins, empowering us with your presence. We celebrate. We celebrate this morning that no sin that we have committed or sin that has been committed against us is a match for your redeeming and restoring grace. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us how how those who you declare righteous through the finished work of Christ are made holy, are made whole, are made more like your son Jesus. May the beauty of the gospel awaken in our hearts a desire for you our immeasurably great and good God, a desire that exceeds all other desires for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So let's begin reading. This is a great text. I don't know if you're doing this. I heard a few this morning as they were coming in saying that they're memorizing Romans 8 through the summer months, the hot summer months here. And so I've been doing that and oh my goodness, it is amazing that the richness of, of God's word, and so let me read it from uh, my cards here in uh, Romans 8, starting at uh, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So you can see in those first two verses, the first one is justification. Verse two is talking about sanctification. And then verses three and four explains how that's done. First of all, in verse three, it explains how our justification is accomplished. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He's talking about the cross there. And then he talks about how our sanctification is accomplished in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice he doesn't say by us, but in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're going to kind of talk about that. But then he's going to go on. This is where the transition begins to take place, where he begins to explain and answer the question, how does the Holy Spirit transform our lives? We all have things in our lives we need to have transformed. So how do we we cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives and experience that fullness of life that he has for us? Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And he goes on to explain that. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. It seems as though we only have really two choices. We're either going to set our mind on the flesh or we're going to set our mind on the Spirit. And that has to do with really living according to the Spirit or living according to the flesh. And then he says in verse 7, for the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Good word. Man, that's good stuff. It really is. If you can begin to get this deep into your heart, it'll change your life. 
And uh, that's the power of God's word. So here we go. How does the Holy Spirit transform our life? Step one, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled us. So this is what you wanna look for if indeed the Holy Spirit is working in your life. We see that in verse 4a. And so, of course, uh, Scripture's the best commentary for Scripture. I gave you Romans 13.8. Basically, it says love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. So if the Holy Spirit's working in your life, you should become more loving. That's the righteous requirement of the law that's being fulfilled in us when the love of the immeasurably great and glorious God of the universe becomes real to your heart, more than just a concept in your head, but it becomes real to your heart, fears subside, joy is uncontainable. That's what begins to take place. 1 John 4.18, 1 Peter 1.8 makes that very clear. We who have been set free from the penalty of sin through Christ and set free from the power of sin through the Holy Spirit, verses 1 through 4, can love generously because we have been generously loved. When you understand the generous love of your creator towards you, Oh my goodness, the response will be this capacity to love him back and then out of that overflow, love others. So you know you're on track by how much you love. You love God, your capacity to love God and your capacity to love others. And so that's what you look at through the work of the Holy Spirit. So how does that take place? Step two, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So we gotta define some terms here, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You can see that I just, I put, the, I put basically chunks of the verses there for your fill in the blanks because that's, don't get any better than that in understanding how this works in our lives and how the Holy Spirit transforms our lives. And so, verse 4b, he uses the, uh, he talks about that, so he says walk. What is walk? Walk it means our character, and manner of life. It's not something that you just do occasionally. This is a pattern in your life. This is who you are. This is the essence of who you are, your character. You can see that word is also this, uh, similar to the word found in verse five where it says, for those who live according to the flesh, those who live according to the, to the spirit. So walk and live are, are synonymous kind of words. So it's a, it's a character, it's who you are. So who walk, who their character is according to, to the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And the word flesh, so what does that mean? The idea, so you're either gonna be walking according to the flesh or according to the spirit. If you're walking according to the flesh, your whole life is being controlled by an effort to be your own savior and Lord. It is a self-salvation project. And there's two ways that we can do this. You can do it in a religious way. It's called, it's moral conformity, keeping all the rules, trying to earn God's favor. Pharisee, that, that's where we get the Pharisees. That's what they were all about. We can all fall prey to that. Or you can do it in an irreligious way. It's self-discovery, breaking the rules. I'll, I'll do it on my own. This is best depict, depicted in Luke chapter 15 with the the two prodigal sons. You guys familiar with the story? So you got the two, the elder brother would be the religious one and the younger brother would be the irreligious one. Those are the two ways we, we try to uh, justify ourselves. We try to validate our, our lives. So your whole life is being controlled by an effort to be your own savior and Lord. So living in the spirit would be different from that. Your whole life... <clears throat> is being controlled by trusting Jesus to be your Savior and Lord. So you're either going to try to be your own Savior and Lord, or, or you're going to let Christ be your Savior and Lord. That's the bottom line. Or here's another way of looking at it, is there's two ways to live. You're going to either follow your desires and your instructions. That's very common in our day today. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. The Bible says that's of the flesh. Or you're going to follow God's desires and instructions. Uh, Galatians 5.16 gives us a good summary statement of that. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I haven't talked about this movie in a while, if you've been with us over a couple years. It's been a couple years since I talked about this. This is one of my favorite movies. I've got a number of favorite movies that I'll talk about from time to time. But this particular movie 
was uh, best picture in 1981. Anyone know what movie I'm talking about? Yell it out to me. What was it? It's close. Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. How many familiar with Chariots of Fire? Great movie. In fact, I just heard that they're looking at re-releasing it just a few days before the Olympics. The, the Rio Olympics this year, and that's what it's about. It's a story about two guys, uh, two British men, Harold Abrahams and Eric Little, who won gold medals for the 1924 Paris Olympics. True story. What's fascinating about the story, the reason why it's a, really one of my favorite movies, is because it puts in contrast these two lives. Harold Abrahams, who's not a believer, Eric Little, who is a believer. He was actually a missionary in China, later on died in a prison camp there. But they're running in the Olympics there. And what's fascinating as you watch their story unfold through this movie is that they both set their mind on the same thing. Both wanted to run, both wanted to win, but for two different reasons. Eric ran to praise his Savior. In fact, there's a scene in the movie where his sister's trying to talk him out, talk him out of running. He says, you don't need to run. That's not that big of a deal. Let's go back to China. We need to reach some folks. And, and, but, he sa- but he says to her, and it's a, it's a beautiful kind of a scene where they're walking over this mountainous landscape, and he looks to his sister, Jenny, and he says, uh, he says, Jenny, uh, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And what's fascinating about that is that he, he ran for God's glory to praise his Savior, and he used that as a platform to proclaim the gospel, which is quite fascinating. And what's interesting about this uh, movie is that he could take it or leave it because he wasn't running to justify himself. He wasn't running to validate his existence. He already had validation and justification through his relationship with, with Christ. In fact, uh, what's interesting about the movie is that his time to run during the Olympics came up on Sunday, and he had a personal conviction never, ever to run on Sunday, and therefore he said, hey, I'm not going to do it. And they tried to talk him out of it. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. So they, they switched and put him in another race, and he won a gold in that. But he could take it or leave it because his validation, his justification was in the cross. It was in Jesus. On the other hand, Harold Abrahams was driven to win a gold medal. And you can see this in the movie. There's actually a scene just before he runs the 100-yard dash is that uh, he tells his trainer, he says, I have 10 seconds to validate my existence. And he was driven. And he was angry when he lost because that was his, his counterfeit God. There's a scene in there where he does lose and his, his girlfriend uh, he kind of puts his girlfriend off and he's just angry and he's ticked off and he's, he's anxious about that, trying to figure out how he can do better next time, but it's just got a control over his life. And his uh, girlfriend says, suck it up, dude, get over it. It's just, a, it's just a sport. And he gets really mad at her and it creates conflict in their relationship and it's, it's quite fascinating. But you've got these two guys that are running for totally two different reasons. Eric ran to praise his savior Harold Abrahams ran to be his own savior. I would encourage you to rent the movie and and watch it. It's pretty fascinating to watch it unfold throughout this movie. So here's my question for you. Are you living to justify yourself or are you living because you are justified? Makes all the difference in how you respond to life circumstances. Are you living to justify yourself or are you living because you are justified? Idolatry, living in the flesh, trying to justify yourself is the cause of much of our bad feelings and bad behavior. If you love anything in this world more than God, you will crush it under the weight of your unrealistic expectations and it will inevitably break your heart. You see that in the movie. It's very clear. Eric Little, you know, it's just, uh, 
he, he, he did it for God's glory. In fact, it's interesting that uh, Jenny Little was still alive when, they, when the movie came out in 1981, and she, she kind of critiqued the movie and said it didn't really display Eric in how he, his style of running was typically to, with his arms flailing and his head to the sky, and he did that to, to glorify God. He did that, and he ran a kind of awkward way of running because it was all for God's glory. Did it for God's glory as opposed to Harold Abraham's was doing it for his own, own glory. He was so needy and uh, didn't have the satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Our inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression, of course, setting aside any physiological contributions, our inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression come from disordered loves, disordered loves, good things that have become ultimate things in our life. Disordered loves. I, I look at my life. I could tell you all the disordered loves throughout my life. There for a while, it was fitness. It was running. I did 10Ks, training to do you know, uh, half marathons, marathons, all these kind of things like that. It, it controlled me. And if I didn't do well, had a hold of my life. And then it went from there to, to what I had, truck, boat, home. And then it went from there to a marriage. And I could not get my wife to validate me. You're supposed to make me feel special. Come on. And she made it very clear that wasn't her job. It was, that was God. I need to look to God. And I was glad that she, she helped me to do that, to find my validation, my justification in God. And I did that. I, I, nearly, I nearly wrecked my marriage because of it. And then I've done it. I did it with my kids. My kids are supposed to, supposed to honor me so I can feel better about me. That's messed up. See, when you start doing that, or I've even done it within the church, when pastors do that, pastors become manipulative and controlling. I mean, it, it, it enters into any areas of our life. Does that make sense? It's like, man, your, your freedom is in Jesus. He validates you. You're justified in him. That's what the first couple verses are all about. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That is amazing. You have all the validation, all the justification you will ever need in Jesus Christ. We forget it, though, don't we? So you need somebody like me to kind of pound it into you week in and week out. Yeah, we all need that. We need to be in a small group where they're helping us to see that. We need to study God's word. We need to pray and pray that God will make it alive to our hearts because we, we so quickly forget those things. And so here's, here's step three. You can see we're going we're gonna to dive a little deeper so I should be a more loving person, and I'm a more loving person as I walk according to the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So my character, my whole manner of life is either going to be, I'm going to try to justify myself, or, or it's because I'm justified, and that's because of something much deeper here, step three, those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So we've got to define some terms here. So set their minds. Immediately, most people think, oh, it's just, well, you've got to be careful about what you think. Well, it's much more than that. When the Bible uses the mind and heart, the, he, the Bible is really using those two terms synonymously. It's really the core of your being, the core of your, your convictions and your commitments. It is more than to think about something. It is to focus intently, to be preoccupied with, to have our heart's deepest loyalties and affections totally captured by something or someone. That's what it means to set their, set their minds, set your mind. And notice what it says, on the things of the Spirit, the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That you've heard me say this before, that ruins you for anything else. Now, where did I get that? It's in the Bible, okay? But more specifically, it's in... Uh, in John 14 through 16, remember when Jesus was going to exit this planet Earth, he was in with his disciples, the upper room discourse is what it's called, chapters 14 through 16, pretty profound uh, interaction between Jesus and his disciples before he's going to be hanging on the cross for them. They were a bit confused, but this he did say, he said, I'm going to send you another comforter. I'm leaving. I'm going to send you a comforter, and this comforter, this, this Holy Spirit is going to be with you, and he's going to remind you of the things that I've spoken to you, but more importantly, he He's going to glorify me. He's going to work in your life in such a way that I'm going to become so real to you that there will be no trial that will overtake you. There will be no temptation that will, that will overtake you or take you out or 
draw you away. That's what he's saying. So Christ would become so real through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a couple thoughts that have been really uh, both convicting and and very compelling to me to help me to make sure that I set my mind on the things of the Spirit. Here's the next fill in the blank. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God is an idol. So, so what I'm saying is that Jesus should absorb your heart and imagination more than anything. See, if the Holy Spirit's truly working in your life, Jesus should absorb your heart and imagination more than your marriage, more than your kids, how well your kids are doing, how they turn out, whatever it might be, your job, your career, any of those things. Here's your next fill in the blank. Where your thoughts effortlessly go when nothing else is demanding your attention will reveal the true God of your heart. So where should your thoughts effortlessly go when nothing else is demanding your attention? They should go to Jesus. So when you're sitting in a, in a waiting room waiting for the doctor and you forgot to take your phone to fiddle with to preoccupy yourself or your iPad or whatever, and you're like there in the magazines, you've already looked through all those magazines before, where does your mind go? When you're laying in bed at night and you can't go to sleep, where does your mind go? That was extremely convicting for me when I began to think about what I'm thinking about and what are the patterns of my thought. I began to realize, oh my goodness, I think about my job. I'm a workaholic. I think about about what people said to me and what I said to them, and I have these brain debates that go back and forth. Oh my goodness, I'm a people pleaser. Oh my goodness, I'm thinking about my performance. I'm a perfectionist. And I have this perpetual dissatisfaction about why I do what I do. Even to this day, I can walk away from three weekend services and go over in my mind, over and over, what I said in all three of the services, beating the living daylights out of myself over the things that I said or didn't say and how I should have done a better job. That's perfectionism. See, my sense of validation and justification is based on, based on where my thoughts effortlessly go to is telling me that I'm finding in my performance. I'm forgetting that, that my validation, my justification, my acceptance, my security, my significance is not in me and my performance. It's in the performance of my Savior. And it's finished. On the cross, he did it all. He covered all the bases. Therefore, through the cross of Jesus Christ, I have all the validation I need. And then out of that, my performance should flow. And it becomes for his glory. Not for my glory. Not, not desperate to fill the void inside of me. No, my, that void is filled with him, knowing him, walking with him, experiencing him. And then out of that comes the overflow of my life. I gave you some verses here, Proverbs 4.23. It says, above all else, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So it becomes the course of life for you. Matthew 6.21 is a great verse. It says, where your treasure is, that is where your what? Your heart will be also. So look at your, look at your heart. Follow it to your treasure. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard one to do because you have to think about what you're thinking about. <laughs> so you gotta start thinking about what you're thinking about and realize because we're so distracted. We are a, a distracted generation, a, a bunch of people with, with all this uh, social media and phones and TV and radio and all this stuff. We keep ourselves so distracted because we, we don't dare think about what we're thinking about because it would trouble us. Yeah, it will. It will, and you'll begin to see the idolatry deep within your heart, that your heart is an idol factory. I mean, it's producing idols one after the other, and you're constantly giving yourself to multiple things in your life as opposed to really giving your heart to God. And that's what creates the issues within our life. Here, I've got another Another verse, a few verses, Luke 6, 43 through 45, it really tells us that the fruit of our lives is determined by the root. If you don't like the fruit, if you're not experiencing life and peace, if you're not experiencing more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, look at the root system. Where's the root system? Your root system is in something, in some God or counterfeit God or in the God of the universe, and that will make all the difference in in your life and how you respond to life. Who you are 
can be no better or no worse than the thoughts that you entertain in your head. What kind of thoughts are mad people thinking? Angry, Angry thoughts. It's pretty basic, isn't it? I mean... Let me walk you through this process. So if you come to me and you're really angry, you're probably thinking angry thoughts, okay? Make sense? If you're really happy, it's probably because you're thinking happy thoughts. Would, that, would you agree with that? It's pretty basic. And uh, so if you're mad, if you're sad, if you're, if you're glad, it's all down to what kind of thoughts are going on in your life. And so there is this ceaseless stream of thoughts running through your mind at lightning speed. Maybe not until you've had uh, a few shots, though, first. Well, I can think clearer now. Uh, I mean, it, it depends. Maybe, maybe first thing in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. It takes a while, but, but that's typical to all of us. Ceaseless stream of thoughts running through your mind at lightning speed. And, and if you're anything like me, and I think you are, um, maybe I'm a little worse than you, but you're, you're here taking notes here this morning, and you're looking up at the screen, and you're taking notes, and, and as you're taking notes, you suddenly notice that you've been biting your nails. You start looking at your nails, which reminds you about the anxiety at work with your boss, which prompts a little anger fantasy about what you'd really like to say to him, and at which, at which you suddenly realize you just missed the next fill-in-the-blank on the notes. Anybody? Can you relate? Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just how our minds work. And people say that I talk fast. You think a whole lot faster than I talk, okay? Seriously. And, uh, and so that's just how it works. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of Jesus Christ. I have to chase down my thoughts and bring him under the influence of Christ. Every thought pattern is leading you either to death or life and peace. Even the thoughts you're thinking right now. And you're the one that has control over those thoughts. You've got to take control over those thoughts. In fact, you want to look at patterns when you begin to experience suffering, what, goes, what comes into your mind immediately when you start having hardship or certain things begin to take place? Words, I, words like, oh, crap. <laughs> Not again. Those are, I mean, those are patterns. Those are patterns in your life. You need to be aware of that. Why do I always go down that track? Why do I'm always upset when these little few things begin to take place in my life? Because it's what you're telling yourself about those few things that are taking place in your life. That's why this is so critical to our lives. If you're not happy in Christ, it's because you're not thinking the kind of thoughts that will make you happy in Christ. If you're down in the dumps, it's because you're thinking those kind of thoughts. And they're going to beat the living daylights out of you. You have a, an ability to choose. That's why he says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's the wellspring of life. It's, it's the course of life. The key to fruitfulness in our lives is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, now which according to John 15, kind of gives us a little bit of an understanding of that, it's abiding. So what we're talking about here is abiding. How many are familiar with that word abide in me as I abide in you? And that, so, so John 15 talks about abiding. So this is what we're talking about here is abiding. Abiding, what does that mean to abide? It means to live, to dwell, to make your home in Jesus, in the love of Jesus, to make your home in his love. What does that mean? It means to fill it, to feel it deep within your heart, saturating yourselves with it, reflecting on it, standing in awe of it. Because love for God in others grows out of an experience of his love for you. So as you begin to experience more of his love deep within your heart, see, this is this idea of 
Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So as you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, that's what you're wanting to do. You're, you're abiding in Him. You have union and communion with Him. You're reflecting and thinking about His amazing love for you. You're enjoying it. You're walking in the reality of it. Love for God and others grows out of an experience of his love for you. Let me remind you, once again, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So what is that? That's love, that you become a more loving person. And the way that you become a more loving person is not by gritting your teeth, trying harder. It's by abiding. It's by enjoying. It's by recognizing, wait, wait a minute, I have everything I need. At this moment, I can turn my heart towards him and I can experience him deep in my heart and I can know that he loves me. Lord, make that real to my heart. I can enjoy his love and out of that I will become a more loving person. I will not only love God but I'll love others. See, if, if you are a Christian, what you should be hearing at the center of your being is God saying, in spite of everything you have done, in spite of everything that has been done to you, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. That's what you should be hearing deep at the center of your being. More than anything, each and every day of your life, you should be just enjoying and savoring and basking in the reality of the love of God for you. That should be the dominant theme in your life. When you find yourself kind of feeling these super negative feelings about your circumstances or the people or what, you got to run back into that and run back into his arms and go, wait, 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 wait. His perfect love chases away fear. Why do I have so much fear? Because I have his love. He's with me through this. Why did I, I not have joy? Why am I basing my happiness based on these circumstances as opposed to what I have in him? I need to run back into his arms and experience what he has for me. That's what we should be hearing, unless, unless, if you're not experiencing and if you're not hearing, you are my beloved child, with you I am well pleased, it could be that you have a, a stubborn or a shallow or a strangled heart, as revealed to us in the parable of the sower found in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. It talks about the different kinds of soils. Soils would represent our heart. The seed would be the gospel. The sower would be possibly the Holy Spirit or someone like myself that's telling you the gospel. But you'd have to look at the condition of your heart. You've got the, the soil, the seed that was thrown on the soil that, that well packed it. It's hard ground. The enemy comes and takes the seed off, the gospel away. So you could have a stubborn heart. Or you could have a shallow heart. It's the seed that goes into the rocks and it doesn't go deep. It's more of an emotional experience. It doesn't, it's not based on good theology. So there's a shallowness to that. And so when, this, when the plant grows up, the sun scorches it, doesn't last. And then there's, of course, the strangled heart. It goes deep, but you got all the cares of this world and even the deception of, of riches that draw you away. We'll talk more about that during our, our communion time as we kind of look at that in our own heart, but God wants you to hear his voice deep within your heart through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you are my beloved child. Why would I say that? Because that, those were the words that were spoken to Jesus because he died on the cross for our sins. Those are our words now. He speaks those to us. That's what we have. He took our record. We get his record. We talked about that last weekend. Here's step four. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So spiritual fruit, life and peace comes from getting swept up into intimate, loving encounters with Jesus. I hope that when you come together, when we gather together here, that's an opportunity for you to be swept up into intimate, loving encounter with Jesus. I hope that when you read his word, that's what it's about. When you pray, it's about being swept up into an intimate, loving encounter with Jesus. Like I said, you can't, you're not gonna be fruitful and experience life and peace by gritting your teeth, trying harder to be, I'm gonna try harder to be more loving or patient or have more self-control. It doesn't happen that way. It happens as a result of an experience of his love deep within your heart. Verses seven through eight, the flesh is hostile to God. It can't submit to God's law or please God. 
Verse 9, he says, if you have the Spirit of God, you won't live in the flesh, but in the Spirit. I love the way it, as I was reflecting on this this last week, I love the way it, it transitions because he says, he says, for the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. I mean, and that makes sense. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Remember, it's a self-salvation project. I'm trying to validate myself. I'm trying to justify myself. I'm trying to be my own Savior and Lord. I'm trying to find my meaning and purpose and hope and happiness in life apart from God. I can find it out there somewhere in creation. Of course it's hostile to God. That is, that's, that's an affront to God. It's saying, God, you can't satisfy me. I could find greater satisfaction in the world. And therefore you're not going to submit to his, his law. Of course not. Because you think you're smarter than God. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So obviously you're not going to be able to please God. But notice this. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. He's like saying, man, if you got the Holy Spirit in you, you want to live for Him. That's, he begins to stir up desire within your heart. Oh my goodness, and that desire is in your heart because He first, if you want Him and you desire Him, it's because He first wanted and desires you. He, he takes the initiative. He's stirring that up within you. If you can sit through a service like this and just kind of yawn and check the box and leave, ee, that's scary. That's really scary. There should be something happening deep within your heart that stirs up within you. Yes, I want, I want more of God. I want him. I want to experience more of him deep in my heart. Yes, I want, I want life and peace to dominate my life. Yes, I want to know all that he has for me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, by the way. He's working in your life. And he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That last phrase is loaded, does not belong to him. I, I, I was turning that back around to, I belong to him. You belong to him. If you put your faith in Jesus, you belong to him. He's got you covered. You don't need to stress out. He's, gonna, he's leading, he's guiding. Look to him, trust in him. Experience all that he has for you. Now, let me, uh, how does setting the mind on the spirit produce life and peace? So how do we get there? Let me, let me kind of walk you through a scenario here. Um, see if you can track with me. If, if you are sorrowful because you just got the news that your best friend or spouse or child was killed in a car accident, and I come to you and say, don't be sad. Don't be sad. This will not take away your sadness. Telling a sad person to be happy does not make them happy. Emotions don't work that way. Emotions are responders, not initiators. But what if I say, don't be sad. It was a mistake. Your friend is not dead. She's in the hospital. She's going to be fine. I just saw her. Here, I took a picture on my phone. Here, look at her. Here she is. And uh, what would happen to your emotions? Would that change your emotions? Absolutely. Why do they change? They change because of facts, truth, promise. Truth changes emotions. Facts change emotions. Promises change emotions. Now, not all facts change emotion. Only great and glorious and hope-filled facts do. Unless we don't believe those facts. Unless we don't believe those facts. The facts might be true, they might be great, but if we don't believe them, they won't change our emotions. We won't experience life and peace as a result of those facts. This is the point. The point is this. Romans 8 is loaded with the greatest and most glorious, life-invigorating, joy-awakening, peace-sustaining facts in the universe. That's what I believe that Romans 8 is, is the greatest chapter. It's an, an amazing chapter. And my knowing and believing those facts is decisive to my experiencing life and peace. Verse 6, once again, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. But no, that's not quite right either. That's not quite right 
either because this chapter makes plain that in my flesh I cannot experience or truly enjoy those glorious facts, verses seven through eight, we just read them. Something deeper than my faith in those facts is decisive. And that's why the Holy Spirit is so prominent in this chapter, verse, verse nine. 15 times in the first 15 verses. There must be facts, they must be true and glorious, and we must see them and believe them and receive them and embrace them as glorious, but we will not be able to do that apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to make these truths alive. Because I could tell you all day long, and I've seen people kind of, I'd say, hey, God loves you, he gave his life for you, and people just kind of yawn right through that. Oh, I've heard that. When I was on the fire department, I'd have guys tell me, oh, I've heard all that stuff before. Yeah, you've heard it, but has it ever, has it ever ravished your heart? Has it ever gotten a hold of your heart? And they would kind of look at me like, what? What are you talking about? Everybody's heard that stuff before. <laughs> but it hasn't changed your life, has it? No. Why? Because it hasn't gone from here, from your head to your heart. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a couple more fill in the blanks. This is how the Holy Spirit begins to work in our lives. The power of sin's promises, this is the flesh, are broken by the power of God's promises. That's the Spirit. It's an explosive power of a new affection. So this is how the Holy Spirit begins to work in our hearts as we begin to pray like crazy. As I, as I memorize and meditate on these first nine verses this uh, last couple of weeks, man, I've just been praying, Holy Spirit, make this stuff alive to my heart. And as I meditate on it, he begins to do that. This is rich, rich truth and promises. It begins, they begin to change me, transform my life, and then my life begins to overflow as I minister to others the truth of God's word. And so this idea, the power of sin's promise, you guys know that sin offers a promise. People don't sin out of duty. They sin because they actually think that they're gonna be happier. It's a promise of happiness. That's why we sin. That's why we take the path that would be away from God because we actually believe in our heart this is gonna make me happier. And the power of sin's promises are broken by the power of God's promises. When we begin to realize Holy Spirit begins to make Jesus more real to us and we say, wait, 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 wait. Why would I go that direction when the Bible says this? God's wiser, God's smarter, God loves me. Why would I do that? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an illustration here. You're living on the streets and starving, so you dumpster dive behind a local McDonald's, and as you are about to unwrap and eat a half-eaten Big Mac, oh boy, the owner of a high-end restaurant chain sees you, comes over to you, and offers to feed you for free from, for the rest of your life. Your dumpster diving days are over. See, that's what begins to take place. There's no more dumpster diving for you living in the flesh because you've begun to see in the spirit what God offers you. That's the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And then what we, what we need to do is that we must know, believe, and rejoice in the promises of God through the power of the Holy Spirit until our heart rests and relaxes its grip on any particular way we are trying to save ourselves, that we are trying to validate ourselves, we are trying to justify ourselves. And of course, we look at our inordinate emotions and our inordinate desires. And I talked about that extensively last weekend. If you, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it because that begins to show us that we've given our heart to something that is letting us down. When we begin to have this inordinate anxiety, anger, or depression, it's because we have given our heart to something that's not coming through for us. And that's the result, the result of that. Like I said, I've done it in a lot of areas of my life. And then Jesus must become more attractive. Here's your next couple fill in the blanks. The last ones. Jesus must become more attractive to your heart and more beautiful to your imagination than your idols. If God is your exceeding joy, Psalm 43, 4, then you can have earthly joys threatened, blocked, or lost without inordinate anxiety, anger, or depression. Let me say that a, a different way if you didn't get that. If, if God is your exceeding joy, you can lose earthly joys. What are earthly joys? It, it can be a marriage, it can be kids, it can be any number of things, God forbid, but that's all eventually gonna happen. 
as we head towards the end of our lives, if God is your exceeding joy, you can lose earthly joys without inordinate anger, anxiety, or depression because, look at the list. I begin to start making a list here in Romans 8. Look at these great and glorious promises, facts, and truths from God's word. So you need to know these, you need to believe them, and pray that the Holy Spirit will begin to make these alive to your life and it will revolutionize your life and that's what begins to change you. Look at verse one, he set me free from the penalty of sin, no condemnation. Verse two, he set me free from the power of sin. Trials won't overwhelm me and temptations won't overtake me. Verse three, Jesus died in my place to rescue me from my sin, amazing love. Verse four, the Holy Spirit indwells me and empowers me. I can face anything. Verse six, the Holy Spirit gives me life and peace in spite of people, things, and circumstances. Verses seven and nine, the Holy Spirit sets me free from the bondage of the flesh. Narrow, self-absorbed, suffocating life. There are over, over 30 promises in Romans 8. See if you can find more as we continue to work through this study. We're gonna prepare our hearts for communion this morning and I wanna pray for our nation, just take a moment and pray for our nation in light of uh, the recent events here this last week. So would you bow your heads with me? And then what we'll have you do here in a few moments, you'll come up and grab uh, communion elements and then you'll go back to your seat and I'll walk us through the process. Let me pray. Father God, may the righteous requirements of the law be met in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, as we set our minds on the things of the Spirit producing life and peace in us. So Father, we, we mourn this week's tragic events in Louisiana, Minnesota, and Dallas. It is evident we need you, God. We are witnesses of distrust, anger, and revenge. We weep, we weep for our cities. May, may we pause long enough to look to you before we look to our impulsive solutions. Oh, Lord God of miracles, do, do what only you can do to save us from ourselves. Give us men and women who will lead us to reconciliation. Give us leaders who will not incite more hate, but those who bring wisdom and healing. God, we pray that you would bring revival to your people and to this great country we live in. Give us voices of hope and healing. May our lives be a proclamation and a demonstration of the gospel of our Savior who came not to destroy his enemies but to give his life for his enemies. God, we know there are homes and families this last week, there are homes and families this last week that did not have a loved one return. Comfort the bereaved give humility to the ones who are resistant to your ways. Father, without you, we have no hope. With you, all things are possible, even for beauty to come out of ashes. We pray for the day of unarmed truth and unconditional love. In the name of Jesus, our only Savior, we ask this. Amen. Three stations, um, feel free to grab communion at any one of these stations. Go back to your seat and I will walk us through the process. Here's the question you wanna be asking yourself. What is God speaking to you this morning? Love for God and others grows out of an experience of his love for you. That's my prayer that as we take communion, these elements represent uh, something that was, uh, that's very indispensable. We, there's no other way we could have a relationship with God except through the cross of Jesus Christ, but it's amazingly costly. There's two things that should come to mind when we take communion and we think about the cross is that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. We were so sinful Jesus had to die. But we are more loved than we ever dared to dream. He loved us so much he wanted to die. That should both humble us and give us amazing confidence. What we should hear deep within our heart, as I said, if, if you're a Christian, what you should be hearing at the center of your being 
is God saying, in spite of everything you've done, everything that's been done to you, you are my beloved child with you. I am well pleased. Unless, unless of course, your heart is stubborn, shallow, or strangled. So how do you deal with that stubborn, shallow, or strangled heart? Well, stubborn heart, you must cultivate an open heart. And you just say, God, I, I want my heart to be more open to you. I haven't really taken you seriously. I think I've, I've lived my life according to my desires and my plan, and so God, I wanna, I come back to you. I look to you this morning. How do you overcome a, a shallow heart? You must allocate time to listen to him. You gotta, just like what we're doing now, just God, I want to take out time throughout the week to sit down and listen to you. How do you overcome a strangled heart? You must eliminate the distractions in your life. Maybe shut the social media down for a while or turn the, the phone off or, or any number of things that seem to be distracting your heart and just take time to focus on him so God as we get ready to take these communion elements we pray we pray that you would sweep us up into an intimate loving encounter with your son Jesus that the Holy Spirit would make him so real to our lives that we would begin to realize more than ever that there is no relationship in this world that can give us the acceptance and love that only he can give us that there's no career or bank account that can give us the security that only he can give to us and there's no success in this world that can give us the significance that only he can give to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Paul writes in the 11th chapter, 1 Corinthians, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. So Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that through Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness found in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you were so committed to our ultimate joy in being reconciled to the Father that you willingly plunged yourself into the greatest depths of suffering for us. May we see more clearly what we cost you and how valuable we are to you so that our worship of you may soar. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.